Hi, I'm Gavin Giovannoni. I'm a neurologist based in London, and this is a new experiment answering questions for my uh, trainee uh, fellows uh, or trainee neurologists around the management of MS and the specific issues we find in clinical practice. So the first uh, um, session will be uh, in dealing with this concept of fingolimod uh, rebound. And this is not unique to fingolimod. It also occurs with the uh, other agents probably in this class, which includes saponimod, lisinimod, and panisimod. And it, almost, it also applies to natalizumab. And what's common to all these uh, disease-modifying therapies is that they don't deplete the cells that we think cause MS. What they do is they trap them and prevent them from trafficking into the uh, brain and spinal cord. So when you remove these drugs and they wash out, all those cells are still there and they can go in and cause uh, recurrent disease activity. So the first question I was asked by Dr. Reda, one of our Menactrim's uh, fellows, is we know that some patients rebound when they discontinue fingolimod, when patients have clinical or radiological evidence of disease activity and a clinical decision is made to escalate treatment, we wait until the patients have recovered from the lymphopenia. Um, the patients don't seem to relapse during this period of bridging. Is this correct? Um, not correct, in my opinion. We've had quite a few patients uh, who have had um, rebound prior to uh, escalating them to the new treatment. I think the reason why we wait for the lymphocyte count to recover post-fingo because there's a small number of patients uh, who've been on fingolimod typically for a long period of time. When you stop it, they don't repopulate. In other words, they remain chronically lymphopenic. And you don't really want to start a depleting agent uh, before the lymphocyte counts have at least shown a trend upwards or got back to near normal uh, in case you, for example, cause persistent lymphopenia. In other words, you deplete the lymphocyte counts even lower and they don't recover. And this is particularly important when we use drugs like um, uh, cladribine, uh, alimtuzumab, or we've sent patients for hemopoietic stem cell that really do deplete lymphocytes uh, after that. So in our practice, what we tend to do is stop the fingolimod. Okay, let's say somebody's got a, a lymphocyte count of 400, which is typical for fingolimod-treated patients, where the normal level is 1,000 per microliter. And then what I do is we bring them in at, at week three, typically, and we measure their lymphocyte count. And we hope that that 400's gone to above 800 or above 600. Uh, and then what we do is if it hasn't got above 800, which is the grade uh, two, three, uh, boundary. I mean, grade one, two boundary. Grade one is when you've got a lymphocyte count between 800 and 1,000. We just then check the lymphocyte count every week. And then once it goes above 800, we start the new treatment. That gives us um, um, confidence that the fingolimod hasn't washed out completely. Uh, and also it allows the other drug to try and work before the fingolimod washes out and we have rebound. Uh, in, our in my experience, it's worked reasonably well. We haven't seen major rebound uh, uh, when we do that. In other words, we're starting the new drug at about week three after stopping fingolimod. And the typical period where we see fingolimod rebound is around about week six to week eight. Um, with natalizumab, we don't have the same issue because natalizumab doesn't cause um, persistent lymphopenia. And with, with uh, natalizumab, as long as we're confident there's no carryover, a PML, which is the main risk factor with uh, nadalizumab. In other words, we do an MRI scan and, and in high-risk patients, maybe a lumbar puncture and check the spinal fluid to make sure there's no JC virus DNA. 
Um, that whole period of getting the MRI scan and the spinal fluid analysis back takes about three to four weeks. And then we can start the new drug at about week four after the last infusion of fingolimod. And we know that, I mean, of natalizumab, and we know that natalizumab uh, takes about three to four months to wash out and get rebound. So with natalizumab, we have more time to play with. Um, just to say to you that there are a handful of patients we've seen when they have developed prolonged lymphopenia when we stop fingolimod. In other words, we stop fingolimod and the lymphocyte counts remain below 800 for literally months. And we've had a few people had maybe not rebound, but recurrent disease activity while we wait for that lymphocyte count to recover. And we had my first index case, the lymphocyte count was about 680 after stopping fingolimod. Uh, and we were around about month seven or eight when they had the brainstem attack. So I think the other message is the peripheral lymphocyte count is really not a very good indicator of effectiveness uh, or MS effectiveness uh, with fingolimod. Yeah, there's obviously pathogenic cells, uh, even though these patients uh, remain lymphopenic. Now, there's a real question about why people on fingolimod, a small number of them, remain persistently lymphopenic. We don't know why, but it does tell us that fingolimod must be uh, depleting lymphocytes uh, um, in the periphery. Um, another clue to this is with the newer generation uh, S1P modulators, particularly drugs like penicillin that wash out very quickly, they don't cause a very low lymphocyte count uh, when you use them, and they uh, reconstitute when you, the lymphocyte counts when you stop it much, much quicker within, say, four to five days. Um, and they're not depleting. They must be less depleting. So I think the, the uh, issue around um, persistent lymphopenia uh, and possible lymphocyte depletion is probably more of a problem with uh, fingolimod than the new generation S1P modulators. Okay, moving to question two then. Um, if a patient develops shingles or cryptococcal infection, which is a fungal infection whilst on fingolimod, uh, one would stop the fingolimod. Uh, however, this would put the patient at risk of relapses. Is there a recommendation for bridging treatment with shingles? When would you restart treatment uh, or would you switch to different DMT uh, with the cryptococcus? What would be the recommended treatment the patient switches to? I think the answer to this is shingles, which is a recurrence of a uh, latent virus in the body, and cryptococcal, which is a uh, opportunistic fungal infection, are quite different. Uh, my personal opinion, we wouldn't stop uh, fingolimod if somebody develops shingles. It's quite common. And uh, all we would do is we would treat the shingles with um, antiviral, and hopefully they would recover without any complications, uh, and we would then uh, continue the fingolimod. Uh, obviously, if you develop shingles, you actually boost your immunity to the virus and hopefully you won't get recurrent attacks. Um, we've had a few patients um, that have had recurrent shingles. In other words, they get attack after attack after attack. There's two ways to deal with that. You can either stop fingolimod and put them on a drug that's less immunosuppressive, um, or you can put them on uh, long-term prophylactic uh, antiviral agents. And we do have a few patients in our practice that are on long-term uh, antivirals. Uh, to suppress shingles, and we use a prophylactic dose. Now, in my personal opinion, um, the agent I prefer is famcyclovir, uh, which is a, uh, a drug that's very closely related to acyclovir or valacyclovir, but it seems to have better activity because it has a longer half-life inside the cell, what we call the intracellular half-life, than the acyclovir-type uh, agents. And uh, uh, in the HIV AIDS patients, uh, it has a much better activity against uh, the varicella zoster virus, the virus that causes shingles, which is why we tend to use famcyclovir prophylaxis. 
Now, cryptococcus is an opportunistic infection, and it takes months, really months, to clear the uh, infection. So if somebody has systemic cryptococcal infection or even the meningitic form where the, um, the fungus is in the, uh, uh, in the spinal fluid, uh, in this situation, uh, I feel very uncomfortable continuing long-term fingolimod, in other words, leaving them immunosuppressed. So what we would do there is put them on antifungals and we'd have to monitor the response to the antifungals. Uh, initially, we treat them with intravenous for two to three weeks and then we switch into a, a maintenance oral. The intravenous is usually uh, an empatericin type agent and then one of the uh, long-term agents would be drugs like fluconazole, itraconazole, uh, and there's a whole new generation of antifungals. And we've had one patient that I look after who developed uh, cryptococcal meningitis and the infectious disease consultants have um, uh, uh, kept her on an antifungal for 12 months and with repeat lumbar punctures to make sure she's clearing the uh, infection in the spinal fluid. This particular patient, we transitioned and switched her on to uh, teriflunamide, which is a immunomodulatory therapy that's not meant to um, uh, blunt uh, antiviral, antifungal uh, responses. And uh, it's also got other activities. It's also antiviral, um, which is probably not relevant to the cryptococcal question, but may be relevant to um, uh, people who have other infectious complications on fingolimod. But what wasn't asked in this question is what happens to people who have HPV infection, for example, or cervical uh, intraepithelial neoplasia, CIN, or they develop cutaneous or perineal warts. And in that situation, um, it's very unusual for the warts to spontaneously disappear while you're on fingolimod. Uh, in that situation, I would almost certainly want to take them off chronic immune suppression. And we tend to switch those patients also onto one of the immunomodulatory therapies. In other words, we would just de-escalate them down to glutyrum acetate or interferon beta uh, or teriflunamide. Uh, and it has been reasonably uh, successful. Um, question three, uh, is it common to see a patient who has been on fingolimod relapse when the medication is stopped during pregnancy? Would you advise giving glutyrum acetate to the risk of relapse, the risk of relapse during pregnancy? So yes, um, it's well described relapses during pregnancy when you uh, stop fingolimod. It happens in about 10 to 15% uh, of, of patients. Um, it's, so it's not that common, but it's probably something to be concerned about. And I think what predicts whether somebody rebounds after stopping these anti-trafficking therapies is how active their disease was prior to going on. Um, so people with highly active or rapid evolving severe MS are much more likely to have rebound or relapses when you stop the therapy. And also with younger patients, um, it looks like the older you get, the less likely you are to have rebound, but there's still a incidence of rebound in older patients. So um, um, I just put up two, two, two uh, short publications um, below uh, where you can see uh, rebound in pregnancy. The first was pretty bad. This patient's MRI lit up like a Christmas tree. And this patient was actually uh, switched and or treated with, um, uh, treated with uh, rituximab. One of the patients was treated with rituximab. Uh, to, to, to control the disease. So I suppose which treatment you would use, uh, ideally you shouldn't allow somebody to fall pregnant on fingolimod. You should probably stop fingolimod, transition them onto a safe drug in pregnancy, which is interferons, glutyrima, possibly uh, natalizumab, possibly dimethylfumarate. I say that the last two agents, natalizumab, uh, dimethylfumarate, are not recommended during pregnancy, but the 
question about whether or not you uh, continue them as a risk-benefit uh, analysis. And I suppose if you're looking after somebody who has really acquired quite a lot of damage, uh, has had very active MS, you'd be very reluctant to leave that patient uncovered during pregnancy. So you may want to transition somebody onto one of those treatments. The other class of therapy that's very good to transition people onto prior to falling pregnant are so-called immune reconstitution therapies. This would be uh, oral cladribine or, or uh, alemtuzumab. Um, but then again, you'd like to get them through their first or second courses before they fall pregnant. So that means planning pregnancy well in advance. Um, so I suppose the, um, the issue around fingolimod and the S1P modulators in general that are considered to be teratogenic and not to be used during pregnancy is to plan uh, pregnancy well in advance of the woman wanting to fall pregnant. But I suppose if it happens by accident and you have to stop the fingolimod, um, then I would almost certainly want to transition them uh, onto an immunomodulatory, uh, other immunomodulatory therapy that's safe during pregnancy, um, acetate or interferon beta, or uh, onto dimethyl fumarate or natalizumab, uh, drugs that are, uh, appear to be relatively safe during pregnancy and are more suitable for people with more active, uh, potentially more active disease. So I hope that answers uh, your question. So um, if, you want, if you like this format, uh, we'll continue it uh, and I'll continue to um, uh, answer these uh, questions um, um, using the, uh, this platform um, uh, going forward. Uh, thank you.